the super familiar with the Wilsons podcast. You know that family whose house you hung out in when you were a kid? The house was a little loud and chaotic, but always fun, and sometimes felt more home than home. Well, that's us. We're the Wilsons, and we welcome you into our podcast with silly chat, ridiculous games, and interviews with interesting people. Like a spin doctor. The super familiar with the Wilsons podcast. Welcome home. I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. It has been a number of years since I began excavating the ruins of Kandar, the group of my colleagues. Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. Eric Bedford lives for the movies. Sometimes he kills with them too. And probably the most important thing, don't ever feed him after midnight. Hello and welcome to the show. This is episode 39 of the Cult Worthy Podcast, and I'm your host, Antonio Palacios. And today we are joined with a very special guest, my friend Josh Scar of the Talking Smack Podcast. It was his idea to bring a goofy movie, the 1995 Disney classic, to the show to talk about its cult worthiness and also how important it was for people like us, young men, young teenagers, adolescent boys, who didn't feel like they had a film from the Disney studio that really reached to them. And this was our film, and we deep dive into what it meant to us as boys and now what it means to us as dads. So without further ado, here is my friend, Josh Scar of the Talking Smack Podcast. And I am here with Josh of the Talking Smack podcast, a podcast that I am very fond of. These guys know everything about films, comic books, Star Wars, TV. So, Josh, how you doing? I'm doing very well considering how tired I am. My kids woke up at midnight this um, morning and uh, baby woke up shortly after I got the other one back to bed. And it's been a day, but I am very happy to be here and much like you, I'm very intimidated to be here because you know so much about these movies. And I didn't even I didn't even realize that a goofy movie is a, a cult classic, really. I just like what I like. And uh, apparently this is a cult classic, so I'm very excited to be talking about it. It is. And before we jump into it, I've reached out to so many people to guest on my shows or to be a guest on their shows. And we really haven't connected yet because exactly what I just talked about. I, I don't want to be that guy on a show that doesn't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and exactly. oh my goodness, your shows are so varied. Like you'll talk about the Boba Fett show and then you'll talk about a comic book and then you'll talk about classic movies. And I feel like I'm educating myself listening to your show. But at the same time, I'm like, please don't ask me on because I don't know what to talk <laughs> about. And then you reached out to me with this one and I felt it was like, wonder twin powers activate like yes i can do this so let's talk about this film yeah it's kind of like what happened with uh brendan at Unsheft when i did a guest episode there uh i reached out to him because they just put out a a thing of hey anyone want to want to do a guest spot with us and i was like i want to get the talking smack out there we went on a th uh, two and a half year hiatus and i really want to like at least get some people listening and so I reached out to Brendan and he wanted to be like, what, let's talk food and entertainment. And jokingly, I was like, let's talk good burger. And Brendan immediately responded with, yes, you knocked it out in one. We're doing that. And apparently it's done quite well for them. And uh, it was a fun time to record it with them. And it was a great excuse to have to go back and watch good burger. And that was a fun episode to listen to because you guys focused on one subject and it was a subject that I understood and resonated with. So it made me more comfortable. Like, all right, let's have this conversation. A goofy movie. Going somewhere, pop? Sure. It's a vacation with me and my best buddy, Donald Duck. No, silly. With you. <laughs> it's goofy. Give me a big smile. Stop. Goof. 
Spin Around. In an outrageous full-length animated feature. We'll spend some real quality time together. I think I'm going to be sick. Walt Disney Pictures presents... Come on, this is going to be fun. The story of a father who couldn't be closer. That's the spirit, Maxie. God, this is embarrassing. To driving his son crazy. This is pathetic. Now, they're getting a crash course in becoming best friends. It's Bigfoot! Could you back up a bit, Mr. Foot? Uh, you're out of focus. This spring, one of Disney's favorite classic characters lands at theaters in the most hilarious It's the Leaning Tower of Cheesa. And hippest animated musical comedy ever. A little smokey! A goofy movie. <laughs> Morning, son. Dad. It's hard to be cool when your dad is. Good. Um, how old were you when this came out? Uh, I came out in April 1995, so I would have been very close to turning 10. Okay. This came out when I was 14. I had just barely turned 14. And I watched this in the theater with a cousin of mine who was a year younger than me. We were on spring break in Florida with my grandparents and they took us to see this movie. I was like hesitant about seeing an animated film because much like our character in Goofy movie, Max, I was in that weird, awkward stage between letting your childhood go and jumping into this life as a teenager. So I didn't really expect to like it. Sitting in that theater, that opening scene of him having this dream about Roxanne, I was like, oh, this guy is me. And the rest of the film resonated. Even though I didn't have that relationship with my dad that Max did, I don't think there was a teenager that age at that time that couldn't resonate with that character. And this is why I liked this movie so much. Up to this point, Disney was making princess movies. Their animated features were really focused towards girls. There was a lot thrown in there for boys. But we really didn't feel like we had a movie of our own. And then this came out and this was that movie. It was really strange because that opening scene is very mature, especially for a Disney movie. I know Disney has mature things in their movies, but this is a good like three to five minute segment of Max essentially having a sex dream about uh, a classmate. And even as a 10 year old, I was like, I get this. And it it just and then it transitions into a little bit of that horror element, which, again, they try to play off with like little sound effects. But it is, it, at least for me as a 10 year old, it was genuinely scary. Like I would I would actually skip that when I was younger, because <laughs> when he starts transforming into Goofy, I was like, no, this is a little too intense for me. And that's the thing, too, is like it plays on Max's fear of becoming his dad. And we've all gone through that phase where it's like when we're little boys, our dad is our hero. Right. And then there reaches a point where it's like, well, I want to be my own guy. My dad's kind of nerdy. He dresses funny. The kids tease him unless you have a really cool dad, which I mean, I, I kind of did. But there was also a lot of stuff where I'm like, oh, God, I don't want to be like this. <laughs> that really played on that, man. And especially making Goofy that character, because let's face it, he's not cool like Mickey. He doesn't have the temper of Donald Duck that everyone gets a riot out of. He really is pretty much an imbecile and that's what makes him lovable so for a teenage boy that's not what you want to be yeah the the relationship was a little different for me because uh to put it bluntly i was a whoops and uh my my dad was born in the 1930s my mom was born in the 1940s so the fact that i was even born is kind of a minor miracle with the age that I, they were when i was born um, so this movie actually put my relationship with my dad, especially in a really interesting perspective, because uh, in 1995, I was in fifth or sixth grade and mm -hmm. uh, I was playing youth basketball. And I remember one of my teammates uh, seeing me wave at my dad and he goes, is that your grandpa? <laughs> and I went, no, that's my dad. And that was the first time I kind of realized that my dad was older than other dads. And then watching a goofy movie, it it kind of just resonated with me that like I need to make more, make an effort to let my dad be involved in my life a little bit more because I won't, I don't have as much time with him as other people might, yeah. which I mean, that's not necessarily true because you know uh, some parents only live to their forties or fifties. Mm -hmm. Other parents can live into their hundreds. So 
my dad lived in to 85. He passed away like two years ago. And uh, it was, it was because of a goofy movie that I had as good of a relationship with him as I did. Um, I won't say that he was a great person. That's not true. And I don't mean to speak ill of the dead, right? but I, it, it made, it made me want to have a better relationship with him and it made it put stuff into perspective for me. Like we went on a, a road trip of our own in the year 2000. I was just like, keep a goofy movie in mind because dad's going to do some things that's going to embarrass you. Dad's going to say some things that you don't necessarily agree with, but he's your dad. He loves you. He's trying to have a moment with you and he just wants to be involved in my life. So let's make the best of the situation that as a teenager, you don't really want to be in. And it makes me wonder, like we should put out a poll after this episode airs of how many men or anyone really, no matter what age, watch this film and had that resonate with them of, oh, you know, my, my, my dad just wants to fit in. He just wants to be a part of my life. You know, I think it's different. This is just based off of what I've seen in movies because I'm an only child, so I have no experience with sisters. But when you watch the representation of like teenage girls in films, there's like a lot of love for dad, rebellious against mom. Or if you're a Disney movie, there is no mom. You know, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of that, too, where I feel like American boys, it's like a two sided coin. Either they're very conservative, strict dad with rules and regulations and structure and stuff like that. I, I point to the dad in American Beauty, you know, that kind of thing. Or there's the dad who's like, look, I messed up when I was a kid. I know you're going to mess up. So just mess up responsibly. You know, if you're going to get in trouble. Let me know. I'll come bail you out. We won't tell mom. Like, I feel like there's like the two sides of that coin. Goofy in this film really kind of plays to the part where he gets some bad information from the principal. So we kind of go through this thing where, and I've been this guy. I've been Max. I was always the shortest kid in school. Always. Until like sophomore year. I'm like, okay, good. Five, six. I'll live with that. You have to find a way. If you're going to be short and you know you're going to get teased, you have to have a defense mechanism. For me, it was just being kind of witty, kind of silly, and just brushing off bullies and teasing by kind of throwing it back at him. And I was kind of known as like the little wisecracking guy. That's how I got away with it. Max kind of has that same thing. He takes a chance. He does his musical number during the school assembly to one of the hottest jams of the 1990s, in my opinion. I will say that a goofy movie for me, at least, is uh, an all-time musical soundtrack there's only a handful of songs. You've got um, Standout, Open Road, Lester's Possum Park, Nobody Else But You, Eye to Eye, and I think that might be it. And the, it's five songs, but to me, those five songs really stand out. Like you can put that up against the bodyguard for me <laughs> as far as like a soundtrack goes. And I would say, okay, yeah, 1A, 1B, I'll take either one. But yeah, the. I'm six foot. I've always been a little bit taller than other kids, especially in my area. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the average height where I went to high school was like five, six, five, seven. So mm -hmm. I was, I was considered a freak. Everyone, how's the weather up there? I'm like, I'm not that tall. <laughs> I'm only six foot. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, the Max taking his shot and just kind of doing what he can to ask out Roxanne. Uh, I rewatched it today and it kind of reminded me a little bit of how I, I met my wife and uh, we started dating it. We just, my friends created a scenario where I was able to be alone with her uh, while she was driving to my place of residence where I lived with my roommates. And I just took my shot and I went, Hey, I think you're cute. And she just kind of went, thank you. And then we just kind of went along from there and it, we built into a relationship and we've been married almost 10 years. And there, there is something to that high school mentality too, where uh, you, you just, you figure what's the worst that can happen. I become a bigger loser and you, you just, like you said, you take your shot. And with Max, it, it's a really cool moment where everyone's just like, yeah, power line. And Max did this great dance number and lip synced and pulled a big stunt and dunked a basketball is it's just a great sequence. It, it's up there with, you're talking about conservative parents. The the first one that came to mind for me was the dad from 10 things I hate about you. Oh yes. And uh, so you've also got Heath Ledger singing. Uh, no, no, I'm I thinking love of you, baby. I think. Is yes. <laughs> yeah. I love you, baby. I got confused with not another teen movie. And I was going to say, Janie's got a gun, but that's not right. <laughs> 
it happens. Yeah, and before we even get further into like the story and the the plot structure of this film, Goofy has never been the most popular character in Disney's intellectual properties. So I think one of the reasons why this is considered a cult film and a gamble is because here they are making a feature-length production for the theaters based off of what I would consider a third-tier intellectual property of Disney shows at the time. You know, because you had DuckTales, you had Tailspin, and then you had this. And don't get me wrong, I loved Goof Troop as a kid. It was definitely like the third on the list. You know, like DuckTales was always first. So to see this film in the theater at the time, the most popular voice in that film was Polly Shore. Everyone knew who Polly Shore was. He was the weasel. He was Encino Man. He was son-in-law. And don't get me wrong, he's got some of the best scene-stealing lines in this film too. But that's what like was what I grabbed after when I was younger. Watching this film as I get older, it's like, oh my God, Wallace Shawn from Princess Bride is the voice of the principal. You've got all the classic Disney voices. You've got Jim Cummings, the Tigger guy as as Pete. Like all these voices that are more important to me now than than Polly Shore. But Polly Shore is what resonated with me when I was 15 years old. Oh yeah, definitely. The Polly Shore was huge in my house too. In the Army Now, Son-in-Law, and Sino Man, all those 90s Polly Shore classics. They they were really big in my household. Um, and yeah, as I got older, I, I learned Jim Cummings was the voice of Pete. He was also Winnie the Pooh. He's now Tigger. If you watch Disney Afternoon, he was in every show, if not multiple roles in every show. Uh, he was Bonkers and all these other characters. And then you also have Rob Paulson as PJ. Mm-hmm. And you know he's he's Pinky and he's Wacko, Yakko. And yeah, yeah. And he, you just have this cast of voice characters and i think the girl that played six on blossom was roxanne's friend if i'm remembering yeah well, Roxanne's friend, modeled and, then, her, and kelly martin her, from uh i knew her from obladi obladi life goes on she was the main girl oh. in life goes on back in the early 90s and then she was on er i think she was even like in an avonlea show on the disney channel or something i just remember growing up with her being in my zeitgeist of like a five or six years older than me, but always knowing who she was. Yeah. I mostly knew her from Blossom. My sisters love that show. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, I grew up with two sisters and now I've got three daughters. So I, right. I don't know what it's like being an only child. I, uh, but again, I know what it's like to be the, the only boy. boy. That's kind of where my, my relationship with my dad really kind of took hold. And I tried to keep that max and goofy idea in my head. Uh, Cause my dad did lose two other sons uh, before I was born. Mm. Um, so I, I kind of had that idea of I'm, I, it, it was a very old school notion, but I mean, the, the medieval kind of like, oh, he's the last son or the saving private Ryan idea of like, mm-hmm. we gotta, he's, he's the last one of his line and like, okay. Uh, so I just kind of had that idea of, I, I gotta be extra special or not special, but like nice and, uh, be there for my dad because he, he doesn't think he has anyone else. The story of a goofy movie is is really timeless and I find it so odd that critics didn't really like it when it came out and just with all the the lessons that came out I know people in my generation we it's really just kind of come back into the zeitgeist a little bit because now we're being catered to for marketing purposes uh like the new DuckTales they have uh back in 2017 when that was still rolling around uh they have a moment where one, the mom of Huey, Dewey and Louie is having a moment with Dewey and they're singing stand out mm-hmm. while they're while she's giving him a flying lesson. And it's just really nice nostalgia that's not feeling pressed because we haven't had 20 years of Let It Go or Beauty and the Beast or all these other movies like a goofy movie really was kind of just pushed aside by the company for a long time. Agreed. And now it's kind of it's kind of coming back because people like us are talking about it and we're buying the albums and watching it on Disney plus, you know, not to go off on a, on a Disney tangent, but when you look at it from a marketing perspective, there was already so much goofy merchandise out there that wasn't related to the film. It was really easy for the film. And if there were toys based off of it or books or coloring books, whatever, it's really easy for it to get lost in the wash of goofy merchandise that's already out there. You can't mistake anything from Frozen or Tangled or Beauty and the Beast with anything else. 
So that's one of the things that I think if I had to look into it with a fine tooth comb is that, oh, there's already a bunch of goofy stuff out there. We'll just piggyback off that merchandise that's already there, giving it the sad opportunity of kind of falling off the radar. But there are people like us, and there's a lot of us, who never let go of the love for this film and kept pushing for more. And it's, it's, it's funny to me that it took another several years to get a sequel. I, I don't like talking about the sequel. I feel like that one is a, a cross-promotional nightmare. Um, I don't know. I know a lot of people enjoy it. For me, it really just feels like a really big commercial for the, the X Games. Yeah. Uh, but to your point, actually, um, I feel like another reason why Disney kind of pushed Goof Troop and this movie aside is because Mickey, the Fab, I think it's the Fab Five or the Fab Six. So you got Mickey, Minnie, Donald, Goofy, Pluto and Daisy. And they're supposed to kind of be timeless. Like they could be anywhere from 18 to 40. And Mickey and Minnie are always in a relationship, but they're never married. No kids, but there's like nieces and nephews. Mm-hmm. and Giving it's kind of like what happened with I'm not sure how familiar you are with Peter Parker. Um, he got married in the late 80s, early 90s, and there were some in Marvel that really hated it because they're like, kids aren't going to relate to Peter Parker. He's married to a supermodel. Yeah, how is he supposed to be the down on his luck, never gets anything right kind of guy when he gets to come home to marry Jane Watson at the end of the day? So in the mid 2000s, they created a really bad storyline and they broke up Peter and Mary Jane through a deal with a literal deal with the devil. <laughs> and I, f- I feel like that's kind of the same thing that they did that Disney's doing with goofy, where if they advertise goofy as having a kid, it kind of ages him out a little mm-hmm. bit of that cool factor area and becomes so relatable. Yeah. So like kids are going to identify more with max than they are going to identify with goofy. Yeah, because in Goof Troop, Max was like a kid. He wasn't like a teenager, if I remember correctly, right? Correct. He was uh, he was adolescent grade school, grade school. Yeah, like middle, maybe early middle school. Uh, But in this one, he's probably like 14, 15. Yeah, not old enough to drive, but old enough to like girls and not want to be around dad. Like that's yeah, want to go to parties and all that stuff and have he wants a little bit of space because he's trying to figure out who he is. Or he thinks he knows who he is because he's 15, but you really don't. You don't. And so, like, what kind of drives the story forward is that, you know, really what is an innocent prank at an assembly gets him a lot of clout around school. And it lets us know that Roxanne's into it. She digs it. (laughs) And her friend's even like, you know, go talk to him. Go talk to him. The principal calls Goofy, whose career is a baby photographer, which I think is perfect. I think it's even funnier that his boss is Pete. (laughs) He says that he's worried that he's going to be involved in like a gang activity. Like, so Goofy, as innocent as he is, takes it as like a very serious issue and thinks that the best way to get him out of that element and bond with him is to go on this two week long voyage across the country to Idaho, which I didn't know Idaho existed in the Disney universe, but apparently it does, to go fishing where his dad took him. And they're going to follow the family map that they've passed from goof to goof. And they're going to hit all the old-fashioned landmarks on the way. Just in that opening scene, man, your heart breaks for Goofy because, like, he's so excited about this. And Max just wants to go to this party and hang out with Roxanne. Like, we've all been there at some point in our lives Goofy puts his foot down because Pete says, you gotta be tough, Goof. And they're on the road. Now, here's my question really fast. Before they leave town, even while they're in town, I never thought of the Disney universe, you know, Mickey, Donald, in all their shorts and all the the media they've been in. I never thought that there would be a town populated by a species of pretty much nothing but goofs. Did that (laughs) seem weird to you? Um, In the context of a Disney universe, not a species. Especially because, again, you you just kind of buy into it, especially once you realize that it's a spinoff of a Goofy movie or not a Goofy movie, uh, Goof a Goof Troop. So you just kind of lean into it like there's dogs, there's anthropomorphic cats, which Pete and his family are. And so it, it just kind of you just got to lean into the the strangeness of the world anyway. Um, I mean, you've got Goofy stacking his two week long vacation on top of his little. AMC 
micro machine car. Like yeah. I don't even know what kind of, it, it looks like the mirth mobile from, uh, it really from does. Wayne's world. It really does. It, but he stacks, he stacks the, his vacation supplies 20 feet high off the top of his car. As one You're, would in the Disney. Universe. Yeah, exactly. So it, it just kind of, for me, it never really stuck out. I, it just, it's like Doug, you know, you got green people, you got orange people. It's part of the universe and you just kind of lean into it. I think I had just never seen that large of a community of one particular anthropomorphic species. Cause like in DuckTales, you've still got the Beagle Boys and you've got other characters in there. In Tailspin, you mostly have the Jungle Book characters, which are a variety of species. It's the first time in my mind where you really just saw like a prominent species of of Disney character. You get a that's, cameo, that's but it, it's, all, it's always rubbed me a little bit weird. That's fair. Yeah, I guess I never really thought of it that way because, yeah, it is mostly dogs other than Pete and PJ because they're cats. Right. Or they're supposed to be. But yeah, otherwise it's dogs and goofy looking dogs. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I never really thought about that. I thought you were going to ask me, like, did it ever really resonate with you that this world took place in the United States? Well, I I mean, (laughs) that that one, I mean, (laughs) I let that one pass. Funny enough, I go after the species, not the the (laughs) geolocations of of Disney films, which leads us to their song as they're heading out of town. And we talked about the opening scene being like a little illicit and, and, and sensual for a Disney film. Man, there's some weird ass stuff going on in these cars on the highway as they're heading across the country. <laughs> so you, you might remember more than me. You got a guy tied to an anvil in the trunk of a car. You've got a zombie, a literal zombie. You've got a car full of nuns and you got like this weird, almost seems like an S and M couple kind of like <laughs> driving along. Like there is some interesting folks joining in the chorus of this on the road song as they're heading out of town. Am I leaving any out that you can think of? Uh, There is an allusion to Michael Jackson. There's a limousine that drives by with a sparkling glove. Mm -hmm. Um, You've got Donald and Mickey hitchhiking, Hitchhiking. which that, that always, it always weirds me out when Mickey mouse, who is like the most well-known icon anywhere in anything and he's like, oh, I, I need money. I'm Mickey Mouse. I, <laughs> you, you're going to buy me as like a pauper, right? Or as a poor person. I I'm I don't have any money. I'm sorry. Like, no, you're Mickey Mouse. You have all the money. <laughs> and the voice is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a little off, but that was around the time that they had recast uh, the guy who had been doing Mickey Mouse for like 30 years after mm-hmm. Walt Disney died. I think he had passed on or at least retired and then they had brought someone new in. Then he did the voice for like another 30 years and actually married Minnie Mouse, uh, the woman who did the voice for Minnie Mouse. They both recently passed away as well. Or he passed away, I think, in like 2012. She passed away in like 2018 or 2019. See, this is why I'm intimidated to be on these shows with you. It's like, (laughs) how the does he know that? So (laughs) Um, I don't know why or how I know any of this. It just it just sticks in my head. I don't know. Yeah. Obviously, Max isn't having a good time. They get to their first little stop which is how does it pronounce again what do they call it the the Lester's possum Possum park Lester's possum park with the most little disturbing song and the most (laughs) disturbing character in the film the little girl that just claps her hands and goes "Ah, ah." yes (laughs) my daughter just lost her fourth tooth and is looking a little bit like her sans the glasses (laughs) yeah so Lester's Possum Park, your your typical tourist trap that, of course, again, your heart melts because Goofy's loving it because he did this with his dad. And there's no place in the world that Max wouldn't rather be than this place. The beat it doofus line is something that my sisters and I loved for for decades. (laughs) Um, The one that still sticks out is if um, going back a little bit is that the uh, the big student gathering before Max does his prank is uh the nerd and the the audience going yo stacy talk to me talk to me talk to me baby that one my <laughs> sisters and i can bust out at any time and we're all just gonna start laughing and before we like go further i, I completely forgot about this they definitely draw female goof characters in a very certain way in this film in a way that i haven't seen in any other like 
IP from Disney that was based around these characters. These, they have goth goofs. When I was 14, I was all about. They had the 90s crop top girls. They had the cheerleaders that all looked alike. Like, I don't recall seeing female anthropomorphic characters drawn this way in a goofy Mickey Donald cartoon. Like, it was very centered for, like, the teenage boys of the 90s, 100%. Yeah, the the young women especially are definitely drawn to be more attractive. Like, there's the one... I don't know if she's supposed to be athletic or exactly. I think she's just supposed to be the, um, the, like the Becky, like the, uh, the girl, girl of the school. She, yeah. 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 She's got like the, the open shoulder, but crop top compressed top and everything. And, uh, like she, even Max like is kind of like, Oh, Hey, maybe. But then, <laughs> uh, Roxanne's friend comes and was like, no, no dude, you, you <laughs> temptation be gone. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's if you if you notice when they get older, they start shifting it. I'm trying to think of the name of the Pixar short there. There's a Pixar short that came out not too long ago where it's kind of like the mind versus the heart. And it got into a little bit of trouble because the adult women were drawn or animated in such a way where like big hips, tiny waist, a mm. little bit of a little bit of a bust. And it got a little bit of flack because it you know, women are not all shaped that way and it's really sexualizing them. Yeah. Um, where I think a goofy movie, it really does kind of lean more towards the younger women because again, it's trying to appeal to a, a more teenage audience. Mm-hmm. And as the women get older, they get more rounded. Yes. Um, but there are a few that have some curves, but that's mostly at the end with power line. But even then, like the, the one that gets the most play is the, the power ballad woman uh, who's, I don't know if it's, I, I wanted to keep an eye out for it, but I forgot to kind of go back to it. She looks kind of like the woman who's in the car with the little man during uh, on the open road. That's what I was thinking. I'm pretty sure that's who it is, but I don't know. That'd be an interesting twist to have that. Or maybe they were just recycling animation cells. I don't know. Which yeah. it very well could be. They recycle so many of those. Like the same girl shows up like three times in three different scenes. Uh, she's wearing like a blue t-shirt, black hair, but she looks slightly different in each shot. Each shot. Um, and all the cheerleaders look the same, whether that yes. was an artistic choice or uh, an economical one. Who knows? <laughs> I think that was more economical. Um, <laughs> just copy paste the cells and put them all in the same place. The Bigfoot scene. You know, so they make it to one of their first stops. And Goofy's putting together his little pump tet that's supposed to like fit both of them. And then Pete and PJ show up in the coolest RV I've ever seen. It's got I a, want a bowling alley on the top of bowling alley, RV. a pool, karaoke machine. It's got everything. And I always wondered, it's like, so this guy is like the manager of like a Sears or something. And he can afford an <laughs> RV like this really messed up my, my financial expectations when I was 14 years old. But yeah, Pete, really just i don't know what he does because he's in in goof troop he's got the wife he's got the money and goofy is the one that's kind of destitute so it it just really kind of plays on what they had already established in goof troop but mm-hmm. yeah where where's a, a guy that's managing a photo department at a sears getting this kind of money <laughs> maybe he's got like some insider trading or something going on that we don't know about wouldn't surprise me it kind of goes along with his character like i i just went to disney with my family but um I ended up buying myself a legacy Luke Skywalker lightsaber, which is like 150 bucks. Mm -hmm. Um, But I got a bonus from work. So I was like, hey, I can spend a little extra and, you know, engage that kid in me and make my heart happy. But my head's going to be like, why did you do that? Well, you can also pass it down. (laughs) That could be your justification. It's like, this was mine and now I'm passing it on to you. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So the Bigfoot scene is, to me, uh, a staple of this film. Because it kind of plays on that old, like, Marx Brothers, Three Stooges, visual comedy. You don't need a lot of words behind it. It's a lot of slapstick. And I tell you, man, as soon as that Bigfoot starts doing the puppet show with the socks, when they ask if he's still outside, even now, that makes me just die laughing. It's hilarious. It's, like, so out of place. That's why I love it. There's there's so much good writing in this movie. Um, I meant to bring this up when we were talking about On the Open Road. Uh, before they even get 
to the vacation part, Max is all like, oh, dad's packing up to go on vacation. He's left me alone before. He'll leave me alone this time. Mm -hmm. I got my own plans. And then he's like, where are you going, dad? And he, or like, we go going somewhere pop. Like there's no adjective in front of it. Just going somewhere pop. And Goofy responds with sure are. (laughs) And obviously Goofy is talking about the we and Max is talking about the him. And because Goofy is Goofy, he thinks he's just speaking improperly. <laughs> and then it, you just kind of realize like, oh, they're having two different conversations. And this kind of it kind of comes back here where Max is freaking out like, oh, my God, it's Bigfoot. And Goofy's just like got his camera. And he's like, hey, could you back up a little bit? You're a little out of focus. <laughs> yeah, it's which great. is great because, again, it's it's referring to the the film where it's all green Patterson and out of focus. Yeah. So it, it's a nice little touch on all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, like, talk about meta humor. There's a lot of it in this film before that was even, like, a, a, a phrase. And as an adult, as I watch this movie, like, I keep picking things up that I missed watching it in my younger years. And a lot of it could be writing, and a lot of it could just be, like, input of the animators. Like, there's so much randomness in this film, whether it's with, like, lines you hear in the background or these little characters that pop up on the open road is the perfect example. There's just so much going on every time I see something new. And the Bigfoot thing is the same thing. And like talk about like the animation too. Every time I watch this movie, I see more and more just random items that Goofy is packed for this vacation. That is absolute nonsense. It keeps getting bigger every time you see it. Like you see the big stack of stuff as they drive away. And as they're like camping or when they go off the road later, there's like always just more and more stuff on this car. The suspension of disbelief in this film is just so fantastic how they just keep throwing more at it. And it's not even like to drive the story. It's just to make the experience more interesting. It's kind of like what they did with Into the Spider-Verse and um, more recently with the not to say that Spider-Verse is old. Uh, but with the Mitchells versus the machines, because like uh, in Into the Spider-Verse, one of my favorite gags is after Peter B. Parker takes the bagel from the Alchemex uh, complex and then Miles just throws it at one of the scientists that's following him. You just see bagel pop up over the guy that gets hit with it. Like it's not something you're really going to notice unless you're looking for it at, at a certain point, because you're just going to see like words above the guy's head you're gonna think oh batman 66 it's right like, whatever it's it says pow but no it says bagel, it says bagel. <laughs> <laughs> and uh in the mitchells versus the machines there's so many callbacks um i've only watched that once but it's so good and the it just there's a running gag of is this family dog a dog or is it a pig or is it a goat and the machines can't figure it out so they like overblow their circuitry trying to figure out what it is um it, it just it plays off that sort of thing where you, you you go back to watch it for the story, but then you see more stuff. The Lego movie has that sort of stuff, too. Yeah, Lego like movie. Definitely. The pigs fall and then they hit the ground and then they just become sausages. They don't just fall to pieces. They become literal sausages, sausages. in the Lego universe. <laughs> There's this very like touching scene where Goofy talks about, oh, when you were a boy, you used to spell hi, dad, in your vegetable soup and your alphabet soup. And Max pulls it off like, yeah, yeah, whatever, dad. But then you see that he's starting to recognize the importance of this trip to Goofy. From that point on, like Max does struggle with his decisions. Like they're still like adolescent prepubescent decisions, but there is empathy for his dad there. There's sympathy there. That's part of what makes this film great is that internal struggle that's always on Max. And even though this would be considered a rudimentary animated feature by Disney standards, the way they play emotions on these character faces is so superbly done, especially I think to, to me at the time as a teenage boy, like, Oh my God, that I make that face. Like it's real. The motions are real. And these are goofies. Yeah. And then Max like slouching in the car, just being really apathetic towards Goofy. Goofy wants to play road games, whatever. You're just glaring out the window, trying to think of any trying to be anywhere else. But there while you're glaring out, staring out the window, it it just yeah, it as a teenager and as a young boy it, in that time, it just it it was so reflective of who we were and what we wanted it. I think part of that comes from the freedom that this movie had, which part of its cult status is the fact Mm -hmm. that 
it was not made by the Walt Disney Animation Studio. It was made by their TV and direct-to-video departments. And so it, it kind of gave them a little bit more freedom to tell a more mature story. It was always going to have a theatrical release because it was contractually required. But the uh, head of the Walt Disney Animation Studios was like, no, we're not making this. It, we're just going to make it to fulfill a contract. But go ahead and make whatever you want. Like he, there was no real quality control except from within the production team. Yeah, they probably didn't think that it could be something that could be marketed big with a toy line, with a costume line, with a bed sheets and stuff line, you know. And Little did they know th- almost 30 years later, people are dressing up as power line. I remember I made one girl's day at a, a convention where I saw she had a blue T-shirt. She had brown paint on her nose and some like freckles. And then I looked at her. She was carrying some books and one one of the books said Max. It's like, oh, my God, you're Roxanne. You're Roxanne. <laughs> and then her her boyfriend was it uh, was just like, hey, he he recognized you. We can go now, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's with the wrong guy. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> he should address his Max. Come hang out with me and my wife. We'll make your day. We'll we'll have fun. Exactly. How cool is that roadside motel that's ocean based, man? Like with water beds with wa- fish in them and coral <laughs> dressers and all that nonsense. It makes you think that there was like maybe they accidentally went to like a honeymoon theme motel or something and Goofy's so innocent, he's like, Yeah, look at this great room. Yeah, it's a don't ask, don't tell motel or something. Something like I, that. <laughs> I never understood the the allure of a waterbed though. Uh, one of my best friends when I was a kid, his parents had a waterbed, and we would we would jump around on it as one would do when they're eight. But it, I getting in there and sleeping, and if you were tossing and turning, like and it's loud, you're sleeping with a partner. Sloshy, yeah, yeah, it, it, you're waking up your partner the minute you like have a leg tremor. I never understood the waterbed appeal. I mean, neither did I, but you have to admit that one had fish in it. That's kind of cool. Although they would probably die every day if it was a real I was going to say, hopefully they have an automatic feeder or something. <laughs> and Max makes this terrible decision, but he justifies it in his mind. Just after he's gained Goofy's trust, he changes the route on the family map to take them to L.A., because the part that we left out is that he lied to Roxanne and said that his dad knows Powerline and they're going to be in the Powerline concert. Of course. I mean, I've told some whoppers before to get a girl to like me. I never went that big, though. It'd be pretty hard to go that big, especially now with social media. I mean, I've, I've got some pretty cool people following me on Twitter. Like I've got Jimmy Palamati and uh, Kyle Higgins, who are pretty big in the comic book world. But like the saying that I I'm going to go and hang out with who's <laughs> who, who do I know that is still popular? Um, Dove Cameron, uh, to say that I'm going to go hang out with Dove Cameron to my daughters and, uh, or to my wife and take my kids. Like no one's going to buy that. They know I don't listen to that kind of music among other things. Uh, but the, the idea that I'm going to go across country that I knew Dove Cameron at some point in my life, just no, no one's going to believe that. Mandy Moore would probably be a more apt description for someone from my generation. Though. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> and it's probably just because like it's at a state fair or something, not to say that Mandy Moore can't fill an arena anymore, but you know, I I've, I've been to some stars of that era at a state fair park and I had a great time. And then afterwards I'm like, Oh, they just played the state fair. Well, that's kind of sad, isn't it? <laughs> but So, yeah, and here's the thing. Goofy trusts Max so much because he's his little buddy. Thanks to Pete and his big mouth, he just keeps planting this seed of doubt in Goofy's mind. Now, Goofy would have eventually found out that they were going to L.A., but they probably would have had a great time getting there. And who knows? Maybe by the time they got there, he'd be like, oh, well, you know what, Max? This was a fun trip. But instead, he discovers that Max changed the route and he's just broken by it because it's not only like the loss of innocence from Max, it's like kind of a nail in the coffin of that father-son relationship, the way that Goofy has just seen it for all these years, you know, and I think he's been in this constant state of denial that Max is outgrowing him, which leads to that most important scene where the car swerves off the road 
goes through a multitude of destructive courses, destroying landmarks and monuments before it lands in the river. And now they're isolated. They're stuck together and they have to talk it out. That's one of the best moments where you have to, you're forcing your, your characters to talk it out to me because again, what better setting than being stranded in a river where you can't get your car off the road, but it is able to float down the river. Uh, I, I just, I love that, that setting. It's so nice. And then like they still, <clears throat> they still get to go fishing a little bit because the fish come and suckle on their toes and mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but, uh, I'm getting a little choked up just thinking about it again. Like my dad passed away not that long ago and I can't listen to nobody else, but you anymore without getting mm-hmm. a little sentimental. Um, and like I have my own kids now. And so like, there's that too, where I, I'm like, I want to be th- that for them too. And it just, it's such a great song, which again, it's, it's one of the reasons why I think this soundtrack is so good, despite only having five or six actual songs on it. Um, it, it encapsulates their relationship. It recaps their relationship and it also signifies the mending of their relationship. Mm -hmm. It does all these things in one little moment. And it, it's, it's also just a beautiful song. Um, I, I, the, the, songwriting team for this album for this movie is just phenomenal and on point and we'd never get to see moments like that in disney films like sons never get to show that kind of emotional vulnerability with their dads the way that movie portrays and i again that's what kind of makes this film to me have the cult status that it does because it does break a lot of disney i'm not going to say rules but it breaks a lot of tropes You know, like no one's trying to marry Prince Charming in this. No one's trying to kill an evil witch. No one's trying to pull the sword from the stone. This is a film about accepting the fact that sons grow up and fathers feel left behind and how, even though it's through lies and manipulation, that ultimate forgiveness of a father to a son and the son accepting that that love even though he's been kind of rebelling against it, knowing that no one's ever going to love him as much as his dad does. And that's what gets me choked up. I'm an only child. I moved a lot with my parents. So for the longest time, my dad was my best friend. And that's how how you say you get choked up in that scene. I do too, because there were times where my dad and I had our outs, but my life always felt empty without him because all the times we moved, he was like that one solid figure, not even as much as a dad, just like that male companion that knew a lot of shit and taught me a lot of shit, but also had my back. So even though we had a really good relationship, just that experience of mine makes that seem resonate so much for me. Like, again, that's probably one of my favorite Disney songs, just because it feels like it was written for me. Definitely. And like the, the relationship you're, you're talking about, uh, it, it reminds me of Goofy and Max. It also reminds me a little bit of, um, Gus Griswold from recess with his dad. Cause one of the big things with Gus in that show is that he's an army brat. So they're constantly moving and his dad is always the guy that's there for him. His dad's his best friend. And, uh, it just, it is something that you don't see very often in movies is you don't get to see, males being vulnerable together you don't get to see the father-son relationships getting mended usually it's just kind of a one-off or even in disney with the tropes in the little mermaid you have ariel rebelling against her father and then one minute they're fighting she disappears and then the next minute he's like i forgive you you can be a human for the rest of your life and i'll never (laughs) see you again but we love you Mm -hmm. yeah so it it is really nice to to see even if it is just like the the final moments of that conversation. One of the things I will never forgive Marvel movies for and Sony for is skipping over that conversation with Aunt May and Peter Parker. Uh, At the end of the first uh, solo Spider-Man movie in the MCU, Aunt May finds out next thing we have next movie. We have them just being all buddy, buddy and working a kind of a scam against uh, uh, people for donations uh, like, Oh, we got Spider-Man here now. So let's get some money from you. And it, I mean, it's, it's for a good cause. So who knows? I maybe saying scam is not the best word, but um, it, it's one of those things where those conversations are real world moments that can really resonate with people. Um, there's a re- really great 
comic in uh, Ultimate Spider-Man where May finds out that Peter is Spider-Man. And there's an entire issue where it is literally just them sitting at a dinner table talking and hashing out this this rift that has formed between them because May now knows that Peter lied to her for two or three years at this point. So even just getting a little bit of that conversation and hearing Goofy talking about like, oh, my Maxie in love. And he's just kind of realizing, yeah, he did wrong, but he's doing it because he's trying to become his own person and he's just trying to find out who he is. He's not doing it because he hates me or he's in a game. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's the exact opposite. He's trying to find who he is and he's trying to find a path. And before we jump into the third act where things work out for Maxie and Goof. Um, and the greatest movie song ever. And the greatest movie song ever. What a great number. But before we get into that, I don't know my Disney history enough. Maybe they explained it in Goof Troop. I didn't watch all of Goof Troop. I just remember watching it because it was on after DuckTales. What is the story with Max's mom? <laughs> um, I'm laughing because I have my own personal fan theory. As a kid, I always assumed Max was adopted. I didn't, because there was never really any mention of the mom. I think there was an episode where they did talk about the mom and it's supposed to be like a heartstrings kind of episode, uh -huh. but I do not remember it. Um, but in my head canon, I think that, so when it's, um, when it's the Fab Five or the Fab Six, it's Mickey, Minnie, Goofy, Donald, Pluto, Daisy. And then Clarabelle is kind of a, an extra character that is just kind of there to balance out the, the women, but she's usually a love interest of Goofy. So um, there's a really good direct-to-video Mickey Mouse movie called um, The Three Mouseketeers. Mm -hmm. I think it came out in like the mid-2000s. Um, Clarabelle falls in love with Goofy, as she is one to do with most anything. Um, but usually Goofy and Clarabelle are in a relationship. So in my head canon, Clarabelle is actually Goofy's wife and max's mom but because she is a cow yeah they can't explain why max is a dog so they just went skip it there's no mom well it's disney people just accept it yeah i mean adoption does kind of make sense because if there's anyone that would adopt a, an orphan baby it would be goofy like he's definitely got that heart and they're not a cruel bone in his body Good. I, I'm glad that got cleared up because I've always wondered that, but I've never bothered to look it up. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that there's actually a clear answer, but that's that's my headcanon is either adoption or Disney does not want to explain Max away as Clarabelle's baby. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. So Goofy takes him to L.A. He's like, we're going to get you in this concert. And I'm glad that they didn't like show us how they actually did it. All we know is that somehow they got into like the roadie truck and got into the guitar case and drum case and made their way backstage. Some tomfoolery aside, Goofy gets stuck in like the Tesla coil bulb or whatever that thing is <laughs> and gets on stage and Max is running away from the roadie and he's up in the scaffolding. Everyone is watching this live concert at Roxanne's house or her friend's house. And they're like, Oh, you see that Goofy kid. Blah, blah, blah. And of course, Goofy pops up, Max swings down and everything works their way because Goofy does the perfect cast dance, which is a jammer, apparently, because Powerline likes it, too. And they get to do, like you said, one of the best musical dance scenes in any Disney movie. I don't care what anyone else says. Eye to Eye is just a fantastic song. It's it's very 90s, especially given its uh, naivety towards like if we just listen to each other, we can work out all of our problems. Don't care. It's it's a great message. I, I love that naive just general message of like, yeah, let's we can talk it out. We can just figure stuff out if we just stop to listen. Um, I love the sequence so much. And Powerline is the chillest artist ever. I mean, <laughs> he has two random people sneak onto his stage and he's still singing and he's just like, um, OK, you got moves. Uh, oh, you're doing you're doing that. Yeah, you got moves. <laughs> let's let's. I, OK, I've already picked it up. Let's go. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Um, so this sequence, the part that really gets me, which I just tweeted out about this before we recorded, uh, because I, I love this part. The, this entire movie is just a big. I love it. 
Um, but there's a moment where Roxanne, when Max finally gets on stage, Roxanne sees him and she just like lowers her head and you just see this joy and love and everything. But like the way it's framed is the background is just all these warm colors. There's no one else in the room with her as she sees Max on the screen. And it's just her having a moment seeing Max on TV and this guy that she likes. And it just it's such a beautiful scene. You, You get everything that Roxanne is feeling in that moment in just two seconds. Yeah. It's and it's, a, I just, I, it's fantastic. It's like a very avant-garde moment in a film. That's definitely not avant-garde. <laughs> and that's what makes it so stunning and stand out is because it doesn't follow that same energy vibe or framing the rest of the film does. You know, I, I, I agree with you a hundred percent and it does. It makes your heart swell. You're like, Oh, like she likes him. And, he pulled through even though it's all built on lies, which <laughs> he does make up for it because he could have easily just let it go when they got home. But you know what? He finally took some advice from his dad. He listened and he's like, you know what? You did get away with this, but if you want this to work, you got to start building this, this relationship with this girl on, on truth, not on this lucky break that you got built on a lie. And it works out for him. You know, it may not work out for everybody who's been in that situation, but he comes true with it. And she's like, well, why did you lie? He's like, well, because I liked you so much. She's like, dipshit, I liked you too. (laughs) Again, that goes with that, like, that self-doubt that is in every prepubescent, postpubescent teenage boy. That girl probably likes you, but you are so stuck in your own head and your own like shortcomings about yourself. Am I tall enough? Am I handsome enough? Am I strong enough? If if she likes you, she likes you. You don't have to be someone else. And I think that was a message that a lot of people needed to know at that time. 100%. Uh, I, I, one thing that this movie always brings up in me is uh, when I was in high school, there was a girl that I knew liked me but I had so much self-doubt that I'm like, I'm just being overconfident. There's no way this girl likes me. And I met up with her a couple of years after high school. And she's just kind of like, you could have asked me out. And yeah, we could have dated for a while. And I just was like, darn it. <laughs> where's, <laughs> where's that time machine? You know, and, and here's where I'll give something to, to, to Max. Because I, I heard someone talk about this one time, like on an on a interview or a podcast about being friend zoned and being in a friend zone, Max doesn't want to accept a friend zone. He wants to go all in or nothing at all, which is probably the healthiest decision because if he like just tried to be her friend and like not be sincere with his feelings, it could have created like this relationship built on like tension and insincerity for the longest time. So by the time he was strong enough and confident enough to say, I really like you, in her case, she'd probably be like, um, well, why didn't you tell me that three years ago? Because now I just consider you a friend. I like the confidence that they display in this film. It's like, you know what? Just take your shot. That is one thing that kids really need to learn is it's okay to be told no, especially in dating and relationships and from friends. You don't have to hold it against people if they say no. Like there, I was told no. I told people no when I was asked out in high school. And it it's nothing personal. I know it feels personal when you're told no, but at the end of the day, you have to realize that not everyone is compatible anyway. So if you don't take your shot, you'll never know, mm-hmm. which again, to me, to, to my friend's credit for getting me in that car with my wife, that was the moment I took my shot and it, it turned out okay. But again, the worst case scenario is she says no. And we have a really awkward car ride to my house later. <laughs> And I'll never see her again. But that's not what happened. In their late 30s, early 40s, talking about a Disney film made back in 1995 that has really, in a way, shaped us into the men that we are. Like, I'm not going to lie. There are so many life lessons in this movie that even if I didn't realize I was taking from this film at the time, when you watch it again as you're older, you're like, oh my God, no, I I think I act this way because I saw Max act this way and it didn't go well for him. And I made that decision. Like you and I are immersed in film, comic books, TV, 
a lot of our persona is based off of what we recognize, appreciate, maybe envy in these characters that we see, you know, like I slick my hair back because I love gangster films. It works for me. I accept that for the longest time. I didn't realize it. It's like, who am I trying to be? You know, you're wearing a Superman t-shirt. We own who we are because of films like this, because of comic books that we've just grown up with. And I think like we are kind of bringing it back to the cult status. That's why this film is the way it is. It really reached out to a generation of people. I would love to think that it reached out to generations after us. I really don't know because I don't know that many millennials that watch this movie. That's what podcasts are for. That's what social media is for. You know, who knows? You might get a thousand tags or a thousand likes or something based off of this from a wide variety of people. And that's what's exciting to me because that cult does exist for a film that was poorly marketed, not pushed the way a Disney property would be. And it makes me like love it that much more. And among other things, I think it was buried behind Toy Story. Toy Story came out like two months later. So like the marketing push was beginning for that. And again, like the the seat, the head of Disney animation at the time, just he just wanted to turn out a, a movie that was on the contracts anyway. So he he just didn't care what was going on. And the quality control just ended up being phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And it it's it, this this movie really did shape at least to an extent my relationship that I had with my own father um, to your point, like entertainment shaping us. I'm pretty sure I'm the way I am because my mom made me watch so much Perfect Strangers and Balky Bartokamas and <laughs> all these other shows on TGIF Full House where th- like every scene they, yo, we're leaving a room, we're going to hug. Okay. And now we, we transition to the next scene. And uh, like my Superman shirt, the I, my favorite characters, Superman, Nightwing, Captain America, like they they all are truth, justice, and equality. Like they that is the stuff I believe in. And uh, that's kind of where this movie again really resonates with me is Max gets in the situation he's in because he lies to both goofy and Roxanne. What, ha- what I know it doesn't make as entertaining of a movie, but what happens if he tells the truth? How are those relationships reinforced mm-hmm. compared to having to be rebuilt on the fly? What would you pair with this film? If you were doing a double feature night, we're like, okay, we're going to watch a goofy movie. And what more recently for me, I think I might actually pair it with um, either the Mitchells versus the machines, which is kind of a goofy movie mixed with into the spider verse or turning red, which I know has been very controversial lately, but I'm, I'm a dad of three girls and I, I did a preview screening of it because we've had so many different people telling us like, Oh, they say a swear and Oh, it's inappropriate for kids. And the only thing that I found that would be even slightly inappropriate, and it's only because the age my girls are, is there's a scene where uh, May May is hiding under her bed and she's drawing pictures of like boys without their shirts on with pecs and six packs. And she's like getting all hot and bothered. And I'm like, Mm. "Uh, my kids aren't even going to know what this means. They're just going to think she's drawing cartoons, whatever. Um, What do you got to plug for me, Josh? Uh, well, I guess I should plug my podcast since that's <laughs> part of the reason why we know each other here. Right. Um, I have a podcast called Talking Smack. We talk superheroes, movies, animation, comics. Uh, we've got, by the time this comes out, we'll have an episode about Futurama that had just come out where we crossed over with Brendan from Unsheft, which you just had on. Mm-hmm. Um, we had Rainy from the Red Dove podcast talk the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which is an episode I am absolutely proud of. Um, the the conversation Rainy and I had is one that I felt was really important, and the the show gave us a great avenue to have that conversation. Um, but yeah, we we also keep it lighthearted. Like we talk nonsense, we talk movies that are. Uh, we we had a, a hiatus, so we go back and we're going to talk about like Avengers Endgame and stuff soon. Uh, but we talk pretty much anything entertainment and we, we have our brain trust and we've met awesome people like Antonio here. And it's, it's just been a blast being back. And everyone, you can find me on letterboxd, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and check out my newest reviews and blogs on the cultworthy.com. Don't forget. I have my sister podcast, the cult worthy classic 
Josh, we got to talk about some old movies at some time on that show. I'll hit you up on that I, one. I will gladly talk about any of the Marx Brothers stuff. I, I know you already did Duck Soup, but I will well, talk any more. Marx Brothers. Yeah, absolutely. And once again, I'm Antonio Palacios, your host. I had Josh and Talking Smack on, and we will see you next week. I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange it has been a number of years since I began excavating the ruins of Kandar, the group of my colleagues. Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. Eric Bedford lives for the movies. Sometimes he kills with him too. Warriors, come out to play. And probably the most important thing, don't ever feed him after midnight. <laughs>